Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. I'm going to try to do this thing this time when you're talking, hit mute, so it doesn't have my heavy breathing in the background. Well, yes, yeah, there you go. Try not to mute me or yourself by accident. What okay. do you like? Don't fiddle, don't fiddle too much. <laughs> we're not after the... That, that's my life, we're not that's my life motto. Don't fiddle too much. That's what the church says. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, you are here listening to Living the Dream and you're joined today by... John. And John, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Yes, at, at John Pacini. And I'm, da- and I'm Dave, and you can find me at With Sober Senses. And it's time to say Happy New Year, kind it's of. A bit it's, late. it's a bit late. It's towards the end of yeah. January. Um, yeah. But it is our first show for the year, and this is the show where we try to kind of look back on what 2017 was all about, think about what's going to happen in what I am like to call 2017. And grey teen. Is it great or grey? That was great. Clear. Like no, it could be. I got took that as grey, and like it's going to be morbid and. <laughs> well, look, I think that actually that's one of the th- like. That's kind of interesting to say that, John, because you know it's always a bit of a challenge to think about. Okay, how do we sum up the year that was? Where do we think we're at? You know, as you know, Mark says it's always hard to begin in sciences, but there's a definite feeling of doom in the air yeah i think so i mean i don't know i just got we I went to the invasion day rallies on the weekend um well the rally in brisbane and kept an eye on everything that's happening and I, and I felt kind of really inspired and, mm. and the, there's quite a lot of good things happening at the same time as there's quite a lot of quite a lot of terrible terrible things happening um in the world so but like you said it is it is hard to figure out where to where to start i mean maybe we should maybe we should start at where we left off last which i think was um our last conversation with 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 simon copland about the plebiscite i don't think we've recorded since then did we did we was the last one about the plebiscite was the last one about the queensland election did we do a queensland election one i don't even remember i'm pretty sure we did okay well let's all right well let's just think about what happened last year i guess and like What's what's significant? What, yeah. what what were the big events of last year? Well, I guess this is actually really interesting because I went back and listened to our for our show at the beginning of two thousand seventeen, mm. and we talked about two things then. Like one was again the Invasion Day protests, and mm. where you know the, really what we're talking about then was, you know, you'd gone to the rally and you're impressed mm. by the size and the militancy and was talking mm. about, you know, there seemed to be, A, a new generation of Indigenous leaders who are mobilising a wider group of people. And we were also talking about that, you know, my experiences in suburban Brisbane was that Australia Day was seeming increasingly less popular, like there was less flags and things like that. But we mm. were also talking about, like, the state and its challenge in maintaining and financing social reproduction. And that mm. the, time, the issue at the time was the robo-debt, 
right? Mm. And it, when I listened to it, I was like, oh, my God, I've totally fucking forgotten about the robo-debts, you know? And, like, it, it seemed to be, like, such a big kind of debate and political issue last year. And then it just, like, dropped off the radar. But if you jump on Twitter, there's an account, I think it's at notmydebt, which is mm. documenting that this stuff is still going on. So it's kind of interesting, mm. like difficult thing to kind of I guess kind of get your head around but on one hand we can talk about you know what are the kind of waves of struggles that are kind of continuing but also this phenomena that how you know we we are still kind of I guess a victims of like a media cycle if that makes sense yep. you know that when we say what is going on we're really saying what is appearing in the news what is to being debated about the political classes and when that yep. drops out of the news cycle then it just seems to have, it just like leaves my memory yeah no it is it is really hard i mean with the with the robo debt thing i was asking someone about this recently someone who 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 knows a bit about this and and it 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 does seem that most of that has sort of been seen as a bit of a failed a failed attempt at recouping it was never really about recouping money anyway it was about disciplining disciplining the unemployed it was about disciplining people um, and I don't know whether that was seen as a success or a failure by by the government. It's certainly like it, it does seem to have dropped off both in the amount that's covered, but also I think, you know, there, there's been less money put into it. There's been less investment into kind of trying to chase these debts up is, is what I've heard. Yeah, I find it really hard to make a kind of judgment about that because mm. I guess, you know, that there's certainly less coverage about it if you look mm. at the this twitter account there's still stories mm. coming out of people who are mm. being sent debt letters like the one i read today was apparently someone saying their grandmother who migrated to australia from latvia in 1949 received mm. a demand that said that they had to prove that they'd never worked in latvia so they couldn't receive the latvian pension and if they couldn't prove that then they owed x amount of money where apparently this person's 100 years old that is literally insane. Yeah, like so. Latvia didn't exist at the time that they left in 1949. Like Latvia was part of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. That is insane. Yeah. So, so I think this stuff, and I think it, it like it does certainly speak to, like, um, I guess the continual malaise that the Australian state is in with its mm. kind of inability. Like, the debt is kind. Of, we can talk about this a bit as well. Like due to continual Chinese growth, there was more income, unexpected income that came in from mineral exports. So unexpected level of royalties and taxation from that. So Australian debt growth is mm. not as bad as people thought it was. That was the big yep. celebration story of the MIFO. That's the media mm. economic finan- financial outlook. Um, mm. But it's still, you could say, it's a general tendency. The state is trying to deal with this kind of increasing debt and at the same time to keep capital accumulation in the air. That's the same story we've talked about like mm. as soon as as long as we've had the podcast right like yeah that that phenomena hasn't go, gone away and they can't they don't have the political will or they're worried about what the economic impacts of um, abbott style austerity would be mm. so they it's always a different plan about how can you pinch a bit of money back here and there Yep. You know, so it, these kind of targeted cuts. So it's the same story in that way, but it's it's interesting about its kind of disappearance. If we mm. think about what was 2017, that kind of disappearance. Yep. Um, I mm. guess the other thing would be, you know, certainly the plebiscite 
Yes. Um, and what impact that that has had, and then also for our friends and comrades around the Queensland state election and the yeah. Greens vote, I guess, and like the Brisbane attempt to engage in a electoral politics and what that means. Um, mm. And also, I guess, like, what the fuck's happening globally? <laughs> yeah. And the climate's gone to shit. Yeah, it's always a bit too messy for us. It's easier. It's, it's, it's too hard for us. As we always say, making pronouncements on global issues isn't that helpful from sweltering Brisbane. Well, Brisbane's relatively yeah, no, 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 tepid at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> compared, like, compared to people in Melbourne. Yeah, there's, there's poor bastards. Um, yeah, I guess if we wanted to talk about, yeah, like briefly about the plebiscite then um, and briefly about the Queensland election mm-hmm. before moving on to 2018, I guess. Yeah. Um, what do we think about about the plebiscite result? Well, I thought the result was fantastic. Yeah. You know, so uh, like we expected a yes vote. I'm glad we got the yes vote. The thing that was interesting from looking at social media, there seemed to be three different geographical um, responses. Mm-hmm. So, like, the most people in Queensland seemed really happy about it because yep. I think that it reconfirmed that the political composition of Queensland had transformed in a way that people thought it had tra- it transformed. Mm-hmm. Um, there seemed to be quite a lot of, like, gnashing of, of teeth and disappointment from people in New South Wales and like a lot of like really shitty attempts to attempt to explain the, Mm. the Western Sydney large no vote in Western Sydney and how questions of like migration, migrant identity and attitudes to sexuality play out. And like most of the commentary I saw about that was just fucking terrible. Um, And then I guess like in Melbourne, there was still more of the we shouldn't have had the plebiscite kind of attitude. Yep, totally. No, um, just on that point of the of the way that Western Sydney was handled, it was really interesting. I saw some great uh, comrades at uh, at the Invasion Day march in Melbourne went as like a, as a homos against nationalism mm. contingent, and I think that that obviously was an intervention, you know, like framed around, you know, like we shouldn't be, we don't have much to celebrate in terms of, you know, like LGBTIQ successes. Mm. If, you know, we're still, if this, if this is still an inherently racist state, right? So I think that that's a good response, I suppose, to some of that mm. rhetoric that was coming out um, about, yeah, especially about those recent migrant communities, which is a lot of people pointed out is a bit rich given that most of the people who are criticizing Western Sydney people for not voting the way they wanted have never really been mm. to Western Sydney, <laughs> except for, like, maybe go and have a nice kebab or something and then, like, run back as quickly as they could. Yeah. and I th- in the West. And I think also the thing that really, like, struck me is the idea that, like, just sees that um, I- these identities as fixed yeah. and having one political opinion rather than yep. understanding kind of the production of identity and politics has been really contingent and really contested. And, yep. you know, there's multiple different... And I think I think that really is also a broader phenomenon at the moment. Like, I'm not really interested in having a debate about identity politics, right? And no. I think if we were going to talk about identity politics in Australia, the identity politics you should start with is Australian nationalism. But, but I think, like, what is interesting at the moment is how we think in really rigid identity categories. 
Yeah. You know, like that's almost like the default way that we think about social issues is to understand ourselves as some kind of rigid identity or to understand anything we do as productive of identities and then to understand Mm. identities as having some kind of a central political characteristic. Like um, this is probably pulling off on a tangent. I think it's even part of the the problem with what I see as some of the contemporary critique of whiteness, if that makes sense, Mm. which sees it as like whiteness as being like such a firm structure that it's mm. like you, that you couldn't break pe- or people couldn't break from it, that there's no possible ability for an emancipatory thing. It's just all you can do is like reshuffle the deck of hierarchy, of identity hierarchies, if that makes sense. Like, like yep. identity feels really firm at the moment. And I think that's really fucking weird because everything else in contemporary capitalism seems really liquid, if that makes sense, you know, like... Mm. Um, you know, like maybe that's just an old argument. You know, part of that old argument about not postmodernism as ideas, but postmodernity as a condition of capitalism is that you know capitalism gets to a certain point and everything solid melts into air, and that's just the free play of different commodities. I think that's you know things become liquid, but we th- part of that product is to think about identities in a really rigid way. Definitely, yeah. And I was really seeing, when you talk about that, it made me think about there's a, the latest Navarra Media is really interesting because it's with um, Liz Facchetti, I believe, the director of the Institute of Race Relations, talking about this concept about, about these kind of identities, how these rigid identities kind of get enforced. And one take-home that I, I took away from it was thinking about multiculturalism and the way that the state, you know, basically selects people to be representatives of ethnic groups or that there are particular bodies and organizations that are representative of eth- of particular ethnic groups that the, the white society is constructed is entirely the basis the way that as she pointed out drawing on um, a sivanandan the main thinker um, of the institute of race relations when it was founded that was the way that colonialism actually functioned <laughs> that was the way that actual like british colonialism functioned is that, you know, it selected key members of ethnic groups and said, you are the people who hold the truth of this ethnicity and we'll go and talk to you when we need to about, you know, what your group wants. And then they could be incorporated into the state. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's entirely an incorporative project. But then, of course, then you get this other thing, of course, when, you know, the, see, we've selected these people, but then, you know, we get upset when, the, when, when these people mm. who, we've, who, we, who we've classed as, as, as um, who, we, who we've classed according to various ethnic, um, entirely set, as you said, entirely concrete ethnic groups without any, um, who are entirely homogenous, we get upset when they don't do what we want them to. Yeah. I remember, like, comrades from Western Sydney in the late 90s who were around, um, the, you know, there was a anarchist formation in Sydney, a kind of anarchist communist form, formation called Love and Rage, and they mm. had a, a, a presence in Western Sydney. And comrades from Western Sydney who were comrades, you know, kids of, of migrants mm. mainly, you know, you, mm. talking about this thing, and it's always really stuck with me that, you know, for a lot of these, like, young people, there was, like, a double struggle. You know, one struggle Mm. was against, you know, the racism of what we could call white Australia, though I think that Mm. term is needs to be retired or or modified today. Um, Mm. But then there was another struggle against kind of the restrictions and expectations of the migrant communities that they were in as well, 
you know, that mm. there was this, and that that always really struck like that, and how, how those lines of contestation that are going on, and I think mm. it was like that's one of the things that came from the plebiscite was just mm. like I think it exposed the poverty of the kind of thinking about that. Um, yeah, but but like I, I think I, I think it was a really positive thing, and I think the other think thing so. that I think is that it was a real body blow to the political right in Australia. Yes. You know, and I think what it really um, said to them was it really rammed home that that they are a political and cultural minority in Australian society. And mm. I think that's actually going to have really interesting ramifications. But one of the things that I think is really interesting is that, you know, if you think like the people who won the yes vote, who won the plebiscite, mm. have almost like still continued the crisis of their own internal crisis, where they've been like, yeah. "Oh my god, it was so terrible that this happened anyway." Rather than going, "Right, we yeah. won that. What else do we want to transform?" While it yeah. seems almost like the losers have hardened themselves in response, and yeah. uh, what I'm seeing is that I think we've got a, a kind of ecology of right politics right now that are increasingly less and less concerned with um, democracy, which I think is interesting for the Australian mainstream right, more and Mm. more invested actually in these culture war issues. And there's multiple competing factions competing Mm. for this small area and they try to like trump each other in outrageous yep. bullshit statements, if that makes sense. And that yeah, ex- that extends from people in the Liberal Party to the fascist mm. grouplets. Yeah, totally. Like, it's an interesting situation um, where we've got basically, like, as you said, you know, like, um, unemployment is, is, is very low. We've got what amounts to the best economic situation we've had in years, but there's absolutely zero wage growth. So mm. if we consider the main driving force of reactionary politics to be the suppression of labor, mm. labor's doing a pretty good job of suppressing itself mm. at the moment. We can talk more about, I do want to talk a bit about um, hashtag change the rules and the response to the Sydney strike. Yeah, the strike um, that didn't happen the, today. The non-strike. The, yeah. ha- the non-strike. Um, but yeah, without an actual like enemy in a way, like they're kind of fighting these shadow, the, the right of fighting these fighting these shadow wars. I mean, we could, you could probably say the same thing about the left. But uh, but certainly the right seem marginalised at the moment in a lot of in a lot of ways. You know, Corbynardi couldn't even get together 100 Australian musicians to be in his, his Australia Day playlist without you know, massive protest. And I, well, I think that is actually something that is different this Invasion Day slash Australia Day from mm. last year, where last year we yep. talked, talked about, you know, um, rising tide of Indigenous struggle, dropping Mm. popularity around Australia Day. Mm. This year we've seen these kind of forces of the right attempt Mm. to launch a cultural war stand about that. I don't know how successful it was. No. Um, But that in itself is really interesting. But at the same time, like, none of these forces are really in any way acting in the interests of capital. Mm. Mm. I guess, you know, like, you could think about, like... um, that's different from, say, the Howard Costello political right, which had mm. a reactionary nationalist cultural politics, but also mm. had like an agenda for capital. Like, mm. none of these people are talking really about capital accumulation. It's all culture war 
um, mm. which I think is really showing like their continual degeneration and defeat, right? That yeah. um, we should, and also I think it, what it's going to mean is like increasingly like the Australian Labor Party looks like just returning to the natural party of Australian capital and government. Yes, which I would argue that it, that it, it generally has been. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that we have since Federation um, in a way um, with a few significant interruptions. But like, certainly it's Labor that has been the transformative force in Australian politics. It's yeah. the one people who are able to really change and modify capital mm. fundamentally. Um, there's probably a book in that somewhere. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Um uh, oh yeah, I wanted to talk about this. I want to talk about hashtag change date and hashtag change the rules. But should we talk about Queensland election first and then um, jump into that? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, yep. So Queensland election, take it away. Yep. Well, yeah. So I mean, I know that when we did, if we did record something that I have no recollection of, then I'm pretty sure that we hadn't had a win in Maywa yet. I'm pretty sure that the Greens had not. Picked up a seat. No, that, it was before that the vote. It was. We, yeah, I'm pretty sure we recorded it before the vote. Before the vote. Okay. Well, yeah. So, so yeah. Like as people know, if you're not in, if you're not in Brisbane, we'll just give you like overview. Basically, there was a very, there's been a kind of a radical. Um, they would definitely self-identify as kind of left populist sort of initiative within the Queensland Greens, led by a bunch of young comrades who have done some amazing things in being able to push some really great progressive socialist demands in the last Queensland election and before that um, in the council elections where they managed to get um, Jonas Three uh, elected to the GAB award. So this time around in the Queensland election, they were trying to get Amy McMahon elected into uh, into the seat of South Brisbane, as well as um, Michael Berkman in Maywa and Kristen Lovejoy in Brisbane. I think it's just called the seat of Brisbane. So those are the three seats that are really targeted. And uh, Amy's, I was there on election night. It was very, very close. It was, yeah, like it was only a few hundred votes in it. But in the end, um, Labor were able to hold on to it. It says, should be the safest Labor seat in the state. And it did come pretty marginal. And then Maywa did go, interestingly. So the seat of Maywa, which takes up uh, Tuong, St. Lucia, Mount Kutha, these sorts of areas, as the first um, Greens member for um, the Greens, first Green state member of parliament who was actually then elected. Mm-hmm. And we had a kind of a Labour renegade in 2009, I want to say, um, who's probably best left forgotten. Yeah. Um- Interesting, right? Like, I think yeah. the, the other thing just generally say about the election, you know, Labor won, mainly because the yes. Liberal vote Sorry. collapsed. <laughs> you know, yes. the, pa- yeah. pa- pa- the Palatine government won. But it was, there was, like, two weeks of no one knowing, right? Yeah, that's and, right. And, like, I think the reaction of most people being kind of amused. Interestingly, like, the One Nation vote, while substantial, only, like, produced one seat. Um, yes. And to make it even more complicated is the One Nation person who won the seat is the first uh, ever elected South Sea Islander um, yes. to Parliament. So, you know, that's interesting. Um, yep. Also, as well, I think there was um, a, a woman up north who's a Torres Strait Islander who won a mm. seat as well. So there's been right. some... Yep. So in terms of the world of parliamentary politics, some kind of interesting um, 
results there. But, yeah, basically this is an election that the, the Liberal Party lost. Um, yep. One Nation did far worse than. And yes. the Green vote, even across the board, was really impressive. The other thing that was interesting as well, which I think needs to be talked mm. about too, was it wasn't just the socialist politics of the Greens, but their capacity mm. to mobilise people both yep. on a large-scale and a professionalised way. Um, mm. And the amount of people, like, so I saw, I, I can't remember his last name, Victor, who was the Greens candidate uh, at Greenslopes. Yeah. You know, like, so he's in a punk band called um, Mouthguard. And, okay, yeah. you know, yeah. and a lot of people that um, were kind of, like, I guess around kind of the Brisbane punk scene vaguely kind of, like, came out and campaigned, right? And mm. it's interesting because, you know, you kind of, like, I know a lot of those people and they're the people that would in some ways have more kind of, like, um, not just radical politics but more of even kind of in some ways like an anti-civilizational politics, you mm. know, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it's yeah. like since this seemed like a like a winning game in town, got really involved. And it made me kind of think that, like, everyone at the moment is, like, somewhere between, like, Ted Kaczynski and Bernie Sanders, you know, like, <laughs> so, like somewhere between the Unabomber and social yeah. democracy in the sense that, you yeah. know, like, people... Is that the, that's the only correct position to hold in the democracy. <laughs> well, but it's kind of like, you know, like, in the sense that people think things are totally fucked and things need to be, like, changed from top to bottom, like, mm. more, more in a way that I think is different from the kind of, like, communist understanding that I have. Combined yeah. with fuck, we we could really do with winning cheaper public transport, you know. Yep. Like, and if yep. something and if something's kind of viable, gravitate towards that. Like, yep. I think it's um, really interesting. I think the challenge is what happens now in yeah. like the non-election year, if that makes yep. sense. And like, particularly, how does this relate to? Um, like, I guess, the big environmental campaign, which is the, the struggle to stop Adani. Yes. I think already you can see some of the problems of success where there seems to be, like... Do you know this guy, Ben Pennings, at all? Yes, I'm familiar with him on the social. Yeah, so he seems like a bit of a chancer, right? Like, yeah. I don't really know this guy. He recently had a piece in New Matilda that I think is really bad and I'm trying to write a critique of. Mm. But he seems to be, like, the face of, like, multiple different social media groups who's kind of mm. doing this weird kind of one-man campaign to put himself on the head of the Greens federal senate ticket yeah and i think it's like this is part of the parallel problems of success right like yeah all these people come back trying to get a piece of the gravy train but also mm. like w what happens now in the non-election period where do people go yeah yeah i mean this is the thing i think basically like everyone's been on kind of protracted kind of holiday <laughs> uh, from kind of the election until sort of um, about now. I mean, I saw it was a good Greens contingent in the Maywa, um new um, MP for Maywa, Michael Berkman was at Invasion Day, which was a good, which was good to see. Um, but yeah, like there's, there's certainly, I'm not sure what's going to happen now. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about the election, of course, was that, you know, we talked about this, and, and I remember in the last show about, about how Adani was um, made into a kind of a non-issue in a way by, um, by Palaszczuk in her kind of withdrawing of the NAIF loan or, or saying that she'd veto the NAIF the, the North Australia Infrastructure Fund loan that was going to facilitate the rail link. I haven't heard much more 
from Adani or about Adani's kind of financial situation since then? Have you heard anything, Dave? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, so I don't know where that will go. Another interesting aspect of this, of course, is that um, there's now uh, one of these, um, the federal liberal government's appointed um, a guy, Gary something, to head of the charities commission. Gary Johns. Gary Johns, yeah. He's the former former Labor. Yeah. Uh, I think he has his own boutique small right-wing think tank in Brisbane if it's the guy I'm thinking of, which is the Australian Institute for Progress. Mm-hmm. I think you call it a bespoke right-wing think tank. I oh, did, yeah. If it's that small. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's bespoke. <laughs> it's craft. It's a craft, craft think yeah. tank. Craft, yeah, craft thinking, yeah. Um, yeah, that's – and they are basically running this line now where they're saying, you know, they're trying to make, you know, get up and, you know, um, the Australian Conservation Foundation on the same footing as, like, the Red Cross and say, you know, that, that – that if you're kind of campaigning on political issues, you can't be considered a charity or something. So that's an interesting space to yeah, be looking is. at. Though I, I don't know exactly what that's going to mean or how far that's going to get. I guess the, the, the kind of, if I had something serious to say about like what happens now before we kind of yeah. get to the specifics is yeah. I, I reread this essay from the 2013 um, issue of Endnotes called The Holding yeah. Pattern. And yep. I, I've talked about it a bit, and uh, Rory, friend of the show, had an article in um, Overland last year where he applied some of the concepts to mm. to um, Australia. But the holding, it's a really interesting article. So it basically says, like, in the wake of the financial crisis, you kind of have this kind of movement of the squares, which kind mm. of hits its own limitations, and they kind of argue that because it frames itself in the language of the citizen, it can never deal with the internal class composition problems, like the inequalities yes. within the class to really challenge capitalism, while capital, on the other hand, averts crisis by, like, um, you know, unorthodox monetary policy combined with austerity in different measures. Though I think, like, when they write in 2013, by now there's been less austerity and more um, unorthodox monetary policy. That that is changing, and we should probably talk about that global macroeconomic picture at, at some time. And I think yeah. that holding pattern is, pr- like, it, it generally describes kind of what's going on, you know, and mm. the challenge has then been, like, ha- like so you have these huge movements of the squares. Like, yep. how do you go beyond these? Obviously, the, the largest wave, the Arab Spring, ended mm. in a pretty serious disaster. Um, mm. And that that's interesting... In, it, in itself in the way that it's had impacts on, on people's thinkings. But I was just realising that there was like three books that, you know, that I've either have read, reading, or I'm about to read. So, you know, Imagining the Future by Srinicek and Williams, yeah, yeah. Assembly by Hart and Negri, and Now by the Invisible Committee. And those three groupings aren't on the same page and there's a lot of antipathy between some of them to each other. But mm. they're all really focused on this problem, right? Which is mm. like, okay, so you had these massive mobilizations and they either hit their own limits, were repressed, whatever. Like mm. what do you do next? Um mm. and, and I think in like Australia's slightly different because you know, because of the mining boom, because the recession didn't hit hit here, you know, Occupy here was only ever a mon- mon- monitorian 
small, small yes. phenomena. Minoritarian. Yeah, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> small phenomena. So yes. it never had anything more serious go, uh, going for it. But I think, again, it's the yeah. same problem. And I think, you know, that that's been part of the appeal of, like, this attempt here to engage in, like, some kind of social democrat, like, radical yeah. social democratic project by people who are more radical than social democrats is it's been the first thing that seemed to offer a way out of this impasse will yeah. it you know and that's not to like throw shit from the sidelines or to say that the people who um, have been leading stuff in the green in south brisbane greens they have to be the people that can provide mm. the solution like in fact it should be the range of people that are engaged in all the different parts of you know the movement for a lack of a better term um mm. to, to to attempt to do this you know like maybe what comes out of like all the people mobilised around the state election, it might be yep. people who were, you know, volunteering and handing out who became friends with each other. They might be the people who lead the next thing, you know, and it might have an entirely yep. different name. Like we shouldn't expect that it has to be like Jono or Amy that, no, no, you know, no, are the people not. at the forefront. No, I think I think I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, and I should say as well that I'm aware for sticklers at home that. Um, the journal EndNotes would not support a project like Green Votes in um, no. South Brisbane. <laughs> Th- though, though it is interesting that, like, the DSA phenomena in the US is probably the same, mm. right, where, you know, a mm. lot of people have gone into the Democratic Socialists of America um, out of the Bernie Sanders success or failure, but, you know, yeah, successful no, totally. And, I mean, you know, like, you would say something similar of momentum in the UK, mm. which has been... Um, you know, um, still like feeding massive amounts of people into the Labour Party um, in the UK, and is you know like really radicalising. Like just today, Jeremy Corbyn was like interviewed, and they asked and the interviewer said, "Oh, what would you do about the housing crisis?" He said, "I buy every homeless person a house. Three hundred thousand people are homeless in the UK, and he said I buy them all a house." And it's like that is actually really great, right? Because mm-hmm. it says, you know, yeah, he's this question which is asked, you know, like, so what would you do, you know, what, you know, like there's, you know, it's just one of these questions where it's like, oh, but, you know, you've got to think about the economics, you've got to think about, you know, the household budget, you know, think about the economic, think about the way that um, the state runs is the way the household budget runs. But he's like, no, we can just throw that all out and just say, no, we actually have not only the power to, but an obligation to, you know, mm-hmm. actually provide and we can actually do this. You know, and I think that that's something that that's really quite important. Is you know, you can say the limits of the possible are pretty are a lot wider. I think, you know, in 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 that electoral, people think at least that there are limit that, that there's more that can be achieved in that arena now than there was in the past. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying. I guess I'm still like you know the ultra left part of me. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't think that this is necessarily like. This might be false illusions or whatever. And I don't think that he'll necessarily be able to do that. I just think you know it's it's good that. Someone there would even say that that's a possibility. That the leader of like a of a major party yeah. actually say that is a possibility is quite significant yeah. and interesting. Right? Yeah, no, like, that, that that like I, I agree. Like, and it is also I guess kind of interesting as well, where like the kind of thinkers for capital and forces for capital don't have an equivalent radical solution themselves. Yeah, no, uh, right. except for maybe competitive tax cuts. Mm. You know, so. Well, yeah. Because it's like, which is really the only thing, like, what's currently on offer from the government here? How are the, yeah. so? So, okay, yes, but let, let's have a step back. Like, um, in turn, if you look at the GDP figures, um, mm. both Australia and globally, they mm. are very good 
yeah. that compared to the crisis. Like I think mm. in Australia what we're still really talking about is like um, the effect of China um, yep. and also the housing boom. But mm. it's, it's actually the IMF. The IMF wrote a paper, um, a short paper, an update to their World Economic Outlook, which they gave to, to, before Davos to the World Economic Forum, right? And yes. it's really, really amazing and it sums up this kind of um, contradiction about what's going on yes. in capital, capitalism globally perfectly, where they say, you know, on one hand, growth is going great. That's really fantastic. Mm. Interestingly, like, um, they factor in higher short-term growth because of the Trump tax cuts, but they mm. assume no major cuts in government spending. <laughs> but then they then say they're really worried about the huge amount of debt and the inflated value of financial assets, course of cheap money, mm. but, which has propelled this growth, but then say they're also worried because they think the rising growth will either lead to rising inflation or mm. um, rising interest rates, so rising inflation because the economy is growing, so that begins to push up some prices, or rising mm. um, interest rates because central banks begin to move away from um, the unorthodox monetary policy they've got at the moment, and that in itself will burst this huge debt bubble. Isn't that incredible where they're saying growth is good the growth is happening because of this huge expansion of financialization and debt. However, the growth itself is so good it could cause this to explode. Yeah, and this is kind of seems to be always always a thing with capitalism, isn't it? You know, like there's always some level that's reached whereby you know the system everything's so good that it'll actually just end up destroying itself, well, eating it's a, itself. It's a particular right? it's a particularly interesting form of how the crisis is contemporarily posed. There's also mm. another paper. I'm pretty sure it's an IMF paper where they're talking about Chinese debt, and one of the things mm. they're, they're, they're tracking is that uh, apparently the kind of the benefit that you get to growth in the real economy, for lack of a better term, from debt mm -hmm. is decreasing. Yeah. So, like, um, you're having to borrow more. Like, more money is being borrowed to have less of an impact. And I guess because a lot of borrowed money is going into, like, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and, and bullshit like that. So, mm. like, it's a very kind of, like, precarious position. And so like, what are the what are the thinkers for capital then putting forward there's nothing particularly radical the IMF basically say you know try to tinker mm. as much as possible and don't upset anything you mm. know like you know c cut where you can spend where you have to they really care about being inclusive and maybe wage growth will just happen at some point um, and in Australia it's like well what's really fucking on the agenda it's tax cuts and then mm. like more but interestingly this whole idea that like tax cuts without spending cuts so that that's actually like that's, that's basically just um, mm. the government subsidising private capital, right? Yeah. Where um, and and now we have this new plan that the government will spend three point eight billion dollars to turn Australia into a weapons exporting yeah. powerhouse. Yeah. we're gonna well, we're gonna become apartheid South Africa in a real sense. You know, like that was the only thing. You know, apartheid South Africa had the bandstands and they were the biggest one of the biggest arms exporters in the world. Mm. Now we'll have you know. Of X missions and, and will also be, you know, a huge arms exporter. Right. But one of the things that's interesting about this, I suppose, is that, again, like the Labour Party and the trade union movement are, of course, ahead of capital in a way on this and saying, no, no, we need to get wage growth moving again. Right. 
And that's actually something that do the IMF is talking about, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, is that they're talking about, you know, how and how are we going to be able to get more money circulating through the economy? They're actually really quite interested mm. in in trying to stop and trying to get this, these these wage rate, these wages moving again, right? So, is that a call then for a return to a sort of like to a to a, to a social to a social um, trade union movement, like like a, a more powerful trade union movement? Is that sort of what? That seems to be what the only way that it's actually going to happen. Mm. Okay, I, I think it's like a a whole bunch of things here, right? Like, um, mm. I think certainly, like what we could call aggregate effective demand. So that's the amount of money that people have in their pockets is a real issue for capital, right? Because yeah. if you don't have people buying stuff, then mm. you can't effectively sell stuff to make your profits. I mm. think the problem with the standard Keynesian approach is that they think it's demand that drives the economy, where I think it's profit. And, yeah. and project mm. and, and expectations of profit that determine yep. um, investment. So yet they're all worried about it. No one has a fucking idea how to deal with it. Like in the lead up mm. to the World Economic Forum in Davos, there was some really kind of like you know dabbling with um, universal basic income coming out from yeah. thinkers yep. of capital. Um, certainly, like the. For Scott Morrison, like, their thinking is if you cut um, taxation, then companies will spend more on um, technology and because they spend more on technology, the ratio of technology to worker will increase. Workers will be more productive and because productivity determines wages, wages will increase. Now, everything in that loop is bullshit. Is wrong. Yeah. yeah like, it, yeah. Is, it is, of course, theoretically potential that a company could spend mm. more on technology, could be more productive, win extra profits and decide to spend those on wages. But it's yes. also possible that they will take that and buy – they'll take their tax cuts and buy banana coin or, you know, like, <laughs> this is a true fucking thing. This is like um, – Bitcoin linked to the price of bananas. Yes. So, so, like, it's it's actually like this way this company is trying to raise funds without, act, like, giving shares. It's by having linking cryptocurrency to the commodity value of bananas. It's fucking weird. But there's certainly, no, there's certainly no necessity that, like, wages will increase even if productivity increases because it's struggle fundamentally that determines who gets yeah. what, not... Um, not productivity, mm. but it's certainly it is certainly a problem for them. Is really and also because there's kind of you know Australia. If we think about Australia, we're really fucking deeply in debt. So you mm. know, like that's a problem. Of course, not only does it mean can we are we buying new things, but can we meet our current debt obligations? Um, mm. But also, there's other things that have been rising really, really high. So just after Christmas. There was a, someone from like some retail association who was like, "Yeah, sales are really down. I think people are worried about power prices, right?" Like, <laughs> so like it certainly is a concern, and they've got no no real ideas. Like, there's certainly not the people who have the interesting thinking at the moment in the way that you could say in the late seventies and early eighties. It was the new right yeah. who who yeah, yeah. taken up here by the ACTU and Labor Party, who yeah. really had like the new ideas, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, maybe we should think about briefly about the hashtag change the rules and yeah. what the Labour Party is proposing and what the trade union movement is proposing here. And maybe, um, and in the context of the of the uh, 
forced work commission's uh, decision to send everyone back to work. Also, why don't you tell us about that decision, John? Uh, I don't. I haven't. I don't know that well. But basically, the is it the, is it the um, RTBU down yeah, there? I'm not even the sure. RTBU, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were going to go on Australia. They're demanding, um, you know, um, apparently half of all Sydney trains are running on overtime at the moment. Mm-hmm. Like basically, that everyone like kind of similar sort of problems in Queensland, but basically people are just work to the bone. The amount of the train drivers are work to the bone in Sydney at the moment, trying to get everything. Moving and the 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 um, union was demanding was demanding um, a certain amount of of of, wa- of wages and that and they wanted to go on strike. They followed every rule in the book. They are doing protected industrial action, which is allowed under the Fair Work Act. They went through all of that and then still it was thrown out by um, the hilariously named Justice Hamburger. Hamburger. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, his name is actually Hamburger. Um, and he chucked that out and basically said, no, you can't have protected industrial action. I don't even know the fundamental reason for that, except for just, you know, that we need to keep the trains going. So he gave two reasons. Yes. Um, one reason that it could harm people. So, of course. And the other yes. was that it could harm the economy. Right. Which is... That was what I thought he said. But which is incredible, <laughs> right? Like... Like, if you think that the point of a strike yeah. is at a hard, like, and I, I think for international... Yeah. The problem in, is that the strike might be successful, and as such, yeah. you cannot have it. And for international listeners, so in Australia, there is a very curtailed, what we would call right to strike, I guess, where you yeah. can only take what's called protected industrial action um, mm. during, what is it, a... a an actual bargaining period. If the vote yeah. goes over certain things, you can't take secondary boycotts. You have to be an employee of the industry, yada, yada, yada. So yeah. th- this is being interpreted as effectively that there is no right to strike. And a, sim- a smaller, similar decision happened um, at the end of last year in the dispute, and we tried to get Godfrey yeah. back on, um, but basically I was too busy with family stuff before Christmas. Yeah, we'll um, do that sometime this year. Godfrey, if you're listening, you will get a call from us. But I actually, I think, you know, change the... I've been talking to lots of kind of um, friends and, and comrades, um, and I think change the rules is something we could actually have a couple of shows about. Of course, it's... Mm. it's in some ways, I think it's going to be the slogan um, of the year. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Well, I, I think the thing that's interesting about it is just to say, I guess, the kind of open, opening comments is it's just almost completely empty. Mm. So it's never quite clear um, what rules to change, <laughs> how to change those yeah. rules. And yep. one of the things that happened over the Christmas holidays that was really interesting mm. is that the content of Change the Rules seemed to change. So in the lead up to the end of last year, it mainly seemed to be that Change the Rules um, spoke to changing the kind of IR laws so people could have um, more ability to carry out industrial action. Mm -hmm. Then around Christmas, it became about casualisation and the um, ability of people to convert casual positions to permanent positions. So it was almost mm. this total change. Now, I heard a rumour, and it could be a total lie. So take that for granted, that basically the term change the rules kind of developed through union focus group research before Ooh. any content was developed. 
that is unbelievably like prescient to what I'd imagine would have happened. <laughs> so if that could be total bullshit. That's just a rumor yeah. that I heard. Um, yeah. So I think that's really interesting. I think like one of the arguments that you get ensconced around it, and I think one of the things that like um, I really think is an important task this year that we have to be kind of like razor sharp separating from is this argument that says something along the lines of the economy is doing badly because the mm. right-wing neoliberals and capital mm. have rigged the rules to held down, held, hold down wages, ag- meaning aggregate effective demand. If we yep. change the rules, we can push for a wage increase and with that wage increase, that will save the long-term health of the economy. Yeah. The, the, so, so this yep. separates the economy from the capitalist, if that makes sense. Like yep. I just, I just think it like sows like really crazy levels of confusion about what's going on, like amongst the class. Which is what I was trying to get at before when I was saying about basically how labour in this way does have a plan, much the same way that labour all has you know been able to do so many economic changes in Australia um, in the 20th century, you know, the, the, and it is this kind of high Keynesian plan, as you said, you know, like they need to, to have wages, have wage growth, and this will stimulate, um, that, that this will stimulate the economy. Um, you know, the, the it, it, it's entirely within like a really kind of basic Keynesian, Keynesian framework that I think they think now is it, it's time for Keynesianism's back. Mm. It's time. It's time again. It's had its time again. It's good again. Yeah, I, like I would have to talk to some people closer to the source about yeah, totally. those kind of, um, the, the thinking behind it. I think the other point we should make as well for people that don't know, the Fair Work Commission actually mm. came <laughs> out of a Labor government. Yep. So the end of the um, Howard government was the Your Rights at Work campaign. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th- this is another time we're having a, a probably a Labor government coming to power with a campaign yeah. around work and industrial relations, fair enough, yeah. um, where the previous one gave us the commission that and the set of laws that just banned the right, that effectively proved that the right to strike doesn't exist. Yeah, I remember the moment where we showed up um, at a... Work, one of the later work choices rallies and the slogan had changed from your rights at work worth fighting for to your rights at work worth voting for. Yeah, indeed. And I was just like, yep, there's a logical line that can be drawn from that moment to the decision. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I pretty sure I went to one because um, it must have been even before Rudd was the leader, a your rights yeah. at work rally where Kim Beasley spoke. Oh and he was, yeah. like, dressed like Napoleon, like had a big jacket <laughs> with, like, a flower in it. And there were all these young Labor people at the front chanting Beasley, Beasley, Beasley. That was fucking weird. Yeah. Um, like, yep. so, but I think that's really going to be one of the major kind of mystifications at the moment, like, mm. where the need to, like, and I think we're really fucking on the back foot intellectually with able to, like, have a sophisticated understanding of, like, the capitalist mode of production um, and simultaneously be able to make that in um, 
pointed and popular ways, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. like, and, um, and I think it's important and there's like this kind of temptation to be drawn into like a kind of, like I think it's real. the enemy's on the left in this situation, right? I think the right is yep. kind of in, in disarray. I don't think we need to overblow the power of the coalition. I don't think the coalition is the cause of our errors. I think it's just a political mm. faction in capitalism. I think yep. we're going to see this rising, like this year, be a rising wave of the Labor Party with it shortens the head, who knows, with this <laughs> argument. And for those of us that want to overcome capitalism, I think it's going to be important to argue against this mystification as part of the process of clearing some space for an independent working class agenda. Um, and I don't think that's easy work, right? Like, um, no. which, which also reminds me is like one thing we didn't do last year was last year was the 150th anniversary of the publication of Capital and the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. And mm. very little commentary in Australia was made on those facts. That's a good point. Yeah. There was, you know, there were socialist groups all held their meetings. But, yeah. But I don't think, it, think they held, you know, like socialist groups always hold meetings on the Russian Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Like, one every, every two weeks. Yeah. Humphrey, Humphrey McQueen put out a pamphlet with the Communist Party of Australia Marxist-Leninist who yeah. are like... Um, called Capital 150 Years Young, which is an mm. interesting pamphlet you can find online. We'll link to it uh, in one of the yep. many half-written things I'm writing. I've got some problems with it. Um, but that seemed to be the only serious attempt to kind of like popularise the kind of Marxist critique of political economy. Um, mm. But I think that that in some ways speaks to, you know, I'm not saying everyone has to read Capital, um, but you do. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that, um, but but I think it's one of those like, and I, I think as well you don't just like read Capital and be able to understand capitalism in Australia. Like for me, I think the difficulty is understanding the kind of critique of political economy pioneered by Marx, understanding all the contradictions, problems, and difficulties in that, doing an analysis of what's actually going on in Australia and they feed back in each other and, you know, you mean you have to change categories, invent new ideas, all that kind of stuff, and then simultaneously mm-hmm. popularising that in a way that we can actually intervene in debates and discussions is really hard. But I think that's yeah. one of the challenges um, right now. It's also interesting, like, in the sense that, like, you know, when I got involved in, in the left, like, Marxist, Marxist-Leninism in some form was probably the dominant framework that the majority of anti-capitalists would think themselves within. I think um, the lack of kind of a celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution last year is indicative that that is not the political framework that that people really think themselves within anymore. I'm not saying if that's a good Mm. or a bad thing. I just think that's one of the things from last year. No, that's that's a really good point. There was a lot internationally, but there was just not very much... There's not very much here. Everything was very, I think, kind of vicarious. People were enjoying and kind of engaging with this stuff vicariously yeah. uh, through through social rather than, um, you know, any kind of significant, you know, attempts to really kind of um, engage with, with yeah, with, with, with consequences, even, even in terms of, like, the consequences of the Russian Revolution in Australia, mm. even in terms of thinking about that history um, with, you know, like, 
you know, yours truly and several other people have a book coming out soon on the far left in Australia since 1945, which we spent all year putting together. <laughs> Maybe just to wrap up this discussion, what are we what are we going to do this year? What are we? Well, the one thing can I do one thing before we wrap up the discussion. Yeah. Um, yep. We should talk about that the Invasion Day rallies were even huger this year. Yeah, totally. And oh, yeah, totally. Sorry. I, I think I think a couple of different things. Um, mm. So there's been both things. There's been that the continuation of that mobilisation of mainly, it seems to be mainly young, but I don't know the internal political composition. But you know, kind of a revived yep. indigenous movement for self determination with a particular yep. political framework. That's been able yep. to mobilise more people in the street and a wider yep. kind of break even in this confused kind of change the date kind of way and yep. and that's that's really popular throughout Australian society um yep. it seems to be um with a right-wing reaction yeah Tony Birch had an article in New Matilda where he was saying in 2017 one of the things that's yep. really interesting is that the mainstream indigenous politics around the recognized yep. campaign just the wheels just fell off so yep. you know you have yep. the, you have the Uluru statement from the heart. That's what this mm. what's called, isn't it? The Uluru yes, statement from right. the heart, yep. which is you know, a really interesting document, and it's a document that people should read. But its central Definitely. plank is to call for you know some kind of basically advisory body to Parliament. Mm. No veto powers that would be able to represent an Indigenous voice. The coalition mm. just goes, nah, fuck that. Right, like, yeah, and and partly because of the internal culture war within the coalition, and that just like. Yep stops the mainstream dead so what do you have building you have this kind of more radical uh, grassroots but it's really unclear at the moment like w- how this is going to play out concretely or also yep. in the context of continuing revelations about um, horrific violence towards indigenous people particularly young yep. indigenous people either through yep. effective lynchings or in the hands of the state mm. in detention, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, like that—that—that's the part of the 2017-2018 story. I think so. There's a few things there as well. Yeah, is the change of the date thing is, you know, like has gotten a lot of traction this year and it has become a huge point of debate and it's become associated with the Greens recently, which is interesting and kind of probably very undeserved given this has been pushed for a long time before mm. that. Um, but also just the fact that, you know, like a lot of people at the at the rally were kind of like change the date. We don't want to change the date. It doesn't really matter what date we yeah. celebrate oppression and genocide on, you know, we can you know, all this joking stuff about changing it to May 8 or whatever, mm. like, that's beside the point of what we need is, like, a decolonization process. And interesting things are happening in terms of kind of at the state level, there's various treaties being negotiated in South Australia and in Victoria with different Indigenous land, Indigenous kind of um, kinship and, 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 and tribal groups. Uh, some of those are going to be signed very soon, apparently. And just last week, um, like the day before, Invasion Day, the Labor opposition in New South Wales said they'd start a similar process if elected. Mm. I haven't really seen much in terms of um, critical or like even just systemic engagement with this treaty process. Um, there's something that is interesting that's that, that's happening, but that certainly, yeah, the, the Uluru statement from the hearts, absolute kind of um, dismissal as a bit of a, a bit of a gut blow to um, 
to Noel Pearson yeah. and a few other people really associated with that. And Noel has written extensively on his deep upsetment, <laughs> upsetment, yeah. not a word, but you know, he's that, that how much this is kind of like, and he's now talking, you know, we need to, you know, get back to the early nineties and start thinking about what went wrong then, you know, and the collapse of the Keating era, the Keating sort of, um, this Keating-esque moment of kind of like, um, um, where there was a possibility that Australia might go the way of kind of, of New Zealand in terms of like a kind of um, bicultural sort of partnership mm. between Indigenous um, and um, coming out of the Mabo decision and whatnot, that there could be the possibility of recuperating the Australian nation state on the basis of some sort of like false, you know, would it be necessarily false sort of equivalency of the two, two, two cultures, two nations side by side or whatever. There was the possibility of that, but that kind of fell off the wheels under Howard. That's and so interesting. There's some real interesting perspective sort of um i'm putting maybe putting words into his mouth a little bit there but just kind of that seems to me what what it speaks to in my knowledge of that of the activism at that time you know just um there's some really introspection going on about the whole about that whole process i think that's really i, I, I think that's really interesting john I, i've actually been thinking about that a lot lately and like you're the historian so you can tell me if i'm wrong here um mm. but i was thinking like how have we previously thought about the question of like you know, some kind of just, I don't know what the right word is, it's all, it's all going to seem wrong, like settlement mm. or reconciliation or um, whatever mm. to the process of genocide and the formation of Australia as a settler colony. And I have reservations about the way that that term settler colony is used um, now yeah. too. But I think it's a historical, like, anyway, it's another debate. Yeah, obviously Australia yes. is, a set, is a settler colony. Like I imagine yes. like in the 70s, 60s and 70s, mm. there was this kind of left argument that it would happen as part of the formation of a socialist Australia. Yeah. You know, and then I guess um, in the 80s, it was part of, part of the Hawke-Keating project where, mm. um, you know, in what you talked about, you know, neoliberal in content, but the Australian state, there was, you know, land right, some form of land rights, some form of treaty, um, mm. that there was ATSIC as a body to represent Indigenous people, targeted yeah. uh, expenditure of welfare and a move to a republic and a change in symbolism. And after yeah. Howard, there's kind of nothing. And I think now, mm. I guess people use the term decolonise to talk yeah. about that. But I've got to say, and maybe this is my failing, like yeah. I'm not entirely sure what the content of that is. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, um, and I think in some yeah. ways you can explain the kind of trajectory of people like Marcia Langton, who I still really like. Like, I think you mm. know, I disagree with a whole series of her politics, right? But mm. I find a whole bunch of her written work really interesting. If that, you know, certainly. Like, she's someone who's like, that. what happens when the framework ends, right? Like yeah. someone who previously was part of the socialist framework, that framework seems yeah. defeated. And so it's like, well, what's the game in town? It's capital. So what we need to yeah. do is get capital. Who's standing in our way? These pesky greens. We've got to get some minds up because otherwise we're just going to be at the arse end of a capitalist society. Which I've got to say is like mm. not that different to what like the left-wing government in Bolivia argues. Yeah, no, that, level, that, those, are know, all, like, those are all really interesting, really interesting points. I mean, I don't, I think we're getting... You know, we're already nearly an hour, so yeah, and I'm reading a really great book about this, which I we should which I'll um, include a, a link to called um, "The Land is Our Land is Our History: um, Indigeneity, Law, and the Settler State," which is all about um, drawing comparisons between Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and thinking about the different ways that Indigenous people sought to um, kind of 
create sort of make indigenous claims relevant and speakable in the context of colonial legal systems and then the way that the in, in making in bringing indigenous knowledges and indigenous rights claims to the state and into the center of the state the state then it launches a recuperative project to basically make those indigenous claims part of the national identity of these states and uh, this is really interesting and this contradictory that the author Miranda Johnson deals with really well is the contradictory process whereby Aboriginal people are able to achieve a certain degree of rights, but at the expense of that they become sort of increasingly embedded within kind of concepts of kind of national identity and changing, ever-changing and morphing concepts of national identity and attempts to legitimate settler rule. Mm. Which is like if you're thinking about 2018, like we're having this debate about national identity, mm. but it seems to be like f- absent any actual attempts to change fundamental parts of Australian society. Mm. So even if we don't stick to like some kind of like rigid base superstructure division, like what mm. does this mean, right? Like what does it mean when you have a, a debate around change the date? It's mm. not in an obvious way concretely linked to movements mm-hmm. making a series of other demands. Um, yeah. Well, this is the thing about the whole debate is, you know, on the one hand, people will say, I'll change the date. You know, no, that that's symbolic. There's nothing important in that. You know, there's no concrete demands. What's that going to do for Aboriginal people? Then you've got the Uluru Statement of the Heart where, you know, actual claims are made saying this is what we want. We want this representative body that will do this function, that will do this, that, and the other. And then, like, no, we can't do that either. Let's just have some, you know, let's just put you in the Constitution as a symbolic, as a case of symbolic recognition. Mm. So it's really, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and I guess, like, part of my thinking is, like, is there would have been a time when I would have said, oh, something symbolic is totally limited. But I think being aware to the capacity of it to overflow its symbolic boundaries yeah. and speak to no, other things right. but you were uh, you were saying before and we should try to keep it short what yep. are we going to do in 2018 yeah um it depends who's the we right that's, well, our, I mean, that's, that's our concept about we in terms of the show i mean like we've, we've got a few ideas about shows we want to do yeah um, I well I've, i want to con- i'm going to try to continue the marxist textbook stuff i have been working yep. on that sorry listeners it's just been like work and family and christmas and holidays um, we're lining up at the moment an uh, episode with, with Tad and Liz about anti-politics, um, yep. which I think is you know, an important concept to us, really exciting. Um, mm. I would like to really do some stuff digging into Australian society. So I'd like to do a show on the NDIS. Yeah, right. And mm. a, a bunch of stuff on um, Change the Rules. Yep. Um, and also, you know, maybe something more seriously around concepts of decolonisation, um, yep. intersectionality, those kind of words that people are using at the moment, but the debate's been largely mm. kind of shit about. And um, if we ever get, like, um, the crowdfunding thing up so we can buy a Zoom, so we can hit the streets more, then mm. um, some actually, you know, more interviews and stuff on the ground. I know Aaron... Um, out in Ipswich, who's recently he and his uh, partner Michelle have a little record store that started, wants us to come out and do a live podcast out from Ipswich about Ipswich um, 
alternative culture and history, which I think would be really cool. That would be uh, really cool. Um, the other thing, like, I, I guess I'm thinking of is, like, something that tries to dig into this other phenomena. You know, we were talking about Adani before. Mm. Um, where on one hand, you know, there's, like, large, I guess, kind of quiet, like, most people think Adani's fucked, right? Mm. Um, but, and then you have a small group of activists carrying out really her- heroic activity, you know, stopping trains, direct action kind of stuff. Mm. But there's been no, like, transformation really into a movement, if that, you know, like, yeah. in in the way that, like, um, maybe the Jabaluka campaign was. Yeah. And I kind of want to think about why is that. I think that's, like, why, mm. why are we not seeing movements that, in like, we have large reservoirs of passive support or opposition Small mm. handfuls of activists doing heroic stuff. Yeah, like why are they not, why not movements? No, that's a really good. Point. Like you know, like it's interesting. Yeah, like just to think about the numbers in Invasion Day, the numbers of people like sixty thousand in mm. Melbourne, like some of the biggest well, protests well, Melbourne that, has seen. That contradicts what I say, doesn't it? Well, in a way, I think it does, but equally, I think like why, like you know, like it's like there's. I don't know. There's more. To, there's more to be said about about. I think the relationship between kind of that the the recent plebiscite and kind of um, this mood that is now present. I think in Australia that you know like that things are ripe for change mm. in in some interesting ways. Do you but, think that's you know, the mood? I don't know. I think that I don't know. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. I think that like largely minimal and symbolic change. No, but, you know like. I'm There's not questioning that. I just find that, yeah. that, that may, like that's interesting. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of just the feel that I've, that I've got. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. But we can talk about all this more. Maybe the listeners can also comment about what they'd like to hear more of mm. this year. Any interesting things they'd like to hear? Cause, we did know, do that last year with our one UBI show. We did. We did, and we. Um, so we, we we're listening. We are participatory. We mm. are. We're good listeners. Yeah, so I, um, I think that's what what I what I want to want to do this year. Like I'm, I think, yeah. Like I've had some people comment, you know, like just how overwhelming the ecological stuff seems. Yeah, yeah. I want to do something about that. Because um, like, I, I think I, I, think I just have that. I think I personally have refused to think about it for ten years. Yeah, no, I think there's some really great people who we could bring in to talk about that. Cool. We should. I've also been reading a lot of Altazair, so obviously we should do like a six or seven episode yep. series on Altazair. Yeah, Altazair. Why everyone else is wrong about Altazair. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, awesome. Oh, well, John, it's it's good to catch up. Yeah, definitely. We'll um, we'll keep everyone posted. Yeah. Have a good start of the year. Take care, everyone, and we'll have lots more shows, hopefully, during the year. Bye. Bye-bye.